for this morning, and we thank you for Sundays. Uh, we thank you for a time that we can gather together with uh, other believers and, and friends and family and uh, worship you and uh, spend some time focused on, on learning about you, learning more about your word, and, and to recenter our lives, Lord. We thank you for Ben. We thank you for the message that he has for us today. We thank you for Genesis and the, and the way that we've been able to walk through it in detail, Lord. Uh, we ask that you open our hearts and our minds to, to learn about those things and to learn about your word and to, to apply it to our everyday lives and, uh, and to spread that to the community of Ira and to those that we're uh, around, those that we work with, those that we go to school with, and um, uh, those that we interact with this week, Lord. Um, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for caring for us. Uh, and uh, help us to remember that this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Tanner. Genesis chapter 49. We're getting there. We're close. It's been nearly, uh, well, not nearly. It's been two years. Uh, that we've been walking through Genesis, and it's been neat to kind of uh, see this book and study it with you and, and preach it and kind of see all the different themes and, and, and things that are interacting with it. And so we'll do uh, half of verse 50 today. We'll finish Genesis next week, and then we're going to spend one week just doing a recap. Because uh, sometimes with, with long books like this, we can miss the forest through the trees. Uh, Thank you, Tanner, for leading worship. Uh, this morning, this text brings us to this idea of worship. Uh, and we were talking about it um, in, in the parenting class this morning, or, or the, the guy who was leading us was talking about this idea that all of us are, are worshipers. It doesn't matter if you believe in God, if you don't believe in God. Whoever we are as human beings, we're made in the image of God, and so we will worship it's just a matter of where we're directing that worship to. And so sometimes we'll, we'll worship false gods or false idols or we'll worship things that we put above the Lord. Other times we'll worship the Lord, but worship's not something for us that we turn on and off. Worship is something that must be directed. And so when we come to our church, we're, we're careful with our wordings. We're careful with our words to make sure we're saying what we're doing is we're not just singing, right? We could gather together and sing. People do that all of the time. If we're worshiping, then what we're doing is we're singing together as a body of believers. That's why the, the volume is typically turned down and we can hear one another sing because we're trying to worship the Lord together to sing those things in our hearts. And so what we'll see today is there's an aspect of worship that often gets overmissed. I don't think overmissed, that often gets missed. And it's this idea that, that worship can happen through mourning. That worship can happen through lamenting. That worship can happen when times are sad. That we are worshiping in those moments as well. And so let's pray and then I'll, I'll set the context and we will walk verse by verse through, through a chunk of scripture. Let's pray. God, thank you for today that we get to gather together. God, I thank you that you've made us beings who are meant to worship. And whether that's through singing, whether that's through conversations, whether that's just through our, our every, everyday, normal, ho-hum life, God, that, that we worship. And so I pray this morning, God, that you would use your word to encourage us where we need encouragement, that you would convict us to where we need conviction, and that you would help us to understand that if we are worshiping beings, then we must always be conscious of what we're worshiping and how we're worshiping you. Grow us in your gospel, grow us in Jesus, and it's in your name I pray. Amen. 
So we're at the back end of Genesis. There's 50 chapters in Genesis. We're going to get halfway through Genesis 50 this morning. And so there's a lot of context that we need to kind of set. And and Jacob is who... uh, Hint, Jacob dies in this passage we're going to read in. Spoiler alert if you haven't read it. Um, And so Jacob has been one of the main characters in the scriptures that we've been walking through for nearly half of Genesis. Abraham gets called by the Lord in Genesis 12, and then since then it's been about these patriarchs. And Jacob has this long, massive section that's about him. It's about his family, his failings, and boy does Jacob have a lot of them, and some of the few times that he succeeds. And so from the moment we see Jacob, he's always fighting with somebody. From the moment he's born, Esau's born first, his twin brother, and Jacob's hand was on his heel as if he's trying to trip Esau when he comes out of the womb or to pull him back in so he could win. If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying, right? That's what Billy taught me this week when we were fishing. He's a deceiver. And his whole life is marked by that kind of attitude of, of, I will trip somebody else up so that I can get ahead in life. We see this when he's, his brother Esau is out hunting and Jacob is staying home cooking. And Esau, he buys Esau's birthright for a bowl of stew. Like at, at our house, Addie and I love stew. That's our favorite meal, right? We'll eat it year-round. Morgan won't cook it year-round, and she offers it to other people, and we both get upset. But I'm not going to sell my few possessions that are worth something for a bowl of stew. But that's what Jacob is able to trick the short-sighted Esau into doing. And then Isaac, Jacob's father, favored Esau, partly because Esau could go hunt game really good, and then he could cook it really well. And, and Jacob is favored by his mom, Rebecca, partly because every time we see Jacob, he's inside the house cooking with his mom. Like, it's just never good for parents to have favorite children, but they certainly did. And Jacob has his own favorite kids as well. And so Jacob and his mom decide to play a trick on Jacob's dad, Isaac, when Isaac's eyes were bad at the end of his life. They dress Esau, they dress Jacob up like Esau in Esau's clothes, so he smells like Esau, he looks like Esau when you feel him, right? Because Isaac is, and then mom cooks the meal so that it tastes like Esau cooked it. And so Jacob steals, sort of steals the blessing from Esau. But then Esau, in his sin and in his anger, gets so upset at Jacob that he wants to kill him as soon as Isaac dies. And so Jacob flees. Leaves his mom's house, flees to to Padanaram where he lives with his mom's brother Laban who is a deceiver among... Like Jacob and Laban fight each other to see who can be more deceptive and and, and nobody wins in those situations. But while Jacob's leaving on his way out of Canaan, he sees some angels ascending and descending on, on a ladder and God's standing at the top and he's overlooking everything. And this is where the Bible's showing us that heaven meets earth and Jesus picks up this imagery on himself where you see the Son of Man with angels ascending and descending. That's where heaven meets earth. And so Jacob's blessed by the Lord. He has this encounter. It certainly leaves a mark on him. It, it's possibly where, where Jacob was saved. And he goes into Padan, Padan Aram, and it's like he forgets that altogether, and him and Laban just start trying to deceive each other, one and, uh, deceiving each other again. He meets a girl, he falls in love at the water well. Lots of imagery there, right? We can think about all the times Jesus met a woman at a well and what happens in those things, and we see a lot of the patriarchs meeting important women at wells. 
And so Jacob wants to marry this girl named Rachel. Laban says, work seven years for me, and then I'll, I'll give you Rachel. And so he does. The Bible tells us it felt like a day because he was just so in love with her. And then on their wedding night, Jacob switches the sisters. Leah goes in instead of Rachel. And so Jacob wakes up the next morning pretty upset, and rightfully so. And so Laban's like, well, listen, here's the deal. I'll give you Rachel, too. Just finish this wedding week. We'll do another wedding, and then you work another seven years for me. And so Laban deceives Jacob to get him to work 14 years for him. And then after the end of the 14 years, Jacob kind of wants to leave. And Laban's like, stay and work for the flocks. You can have this little branch. And so Jacob kind of does some weird things. And his amount of the flocks grow. And he becomes rich at the expense of Laban. Like, it's just these two guys battling back and forth and back and forth. And so finally the time comes when Jacob wants to leave. Laban is off shearing some sheep. And so he grabs his wife. He grabs all of his kids. And there's a whole, like, homeschool van full of these kids now. And they take off. They leave the promised land, and so he, he's pursued by Laban. Laban catches them. They have kind of like a heart-to-heart. They make a covenant. You stay on your side. I'll stay on my side. And then they depart. And so then we see Jacob coming to the promised land, but Jacob's petrified. Remember, he has a brother who's really good at hunting. And so Jacob knows he needs to confront Esau, he needs to talk to Esau, he needs to find a way to bridge that relationship. So he just sends him all of these gifts, all of these things are going to Esau. And then he hears Esau's coming to him, so he's scared. So he lines his family up so that his favorite sibling, or his favorite wife and his favorite son, Joseph, Benjamin's not been born yet, are at the back so that if they do get attacked, those ones can at least get away. And then the night before, Jacob's alone. And we see in this alone moment that God shows up and fights Jacob. They wrestle. And they wrestle all night long, and then God hits his hip and pops his hip out of socket. And what he does is he's teaching Jacob, you can't depend on yourself anymore. You can't even walk away normal. You have a limp from now on. And Jacob clings to the Lord in this fight until God blesses Jacob. And then Esau comes, and and turns out he's not that mad. Everything Esau wanted in life, he could get without the Lord. And so they're reconciled. They settle in the land. Rachel gives birth to Benjamin. Uh, which means most handsome person in the world. Just kidding. But she dies in labor. And then Jacob's sons begin acting like their father. So they sell Joseph, Jacob's favorite, and then Jacob kind of fades into the background of the story while Joseph is going through the highs and the lows of the circumstances of his life that we've said multiple times. It's phenomenal that he was sold into Egypt as a slave and within 20 years had made his way all the way up to being second in command in Egypt. And so then the brothers come back. Jacob and Joseph are reunited in a way that shocks everybody. Everybody is surprised about what what happens how it happens that Jacob still, that Joseph still, I mean, it just, everything is, is mind-blowing to these people. And so Jacob recognizes that he's at the end of his life. In a way to kind of draw us back to, to Isaac, Jacob's eyes have started fading. He's laying on his deathbed, and then his grandsons come in for a blessing, and Jacob does what Jacob does. He switches his hands and gives the younger one the better blessing over the older one. And then has all the other sons come in. They, they all get blessed. And, and, and what's so interesting and so special for us, when we think about the people God has chosen, Abraham and Isaac, to carry on this family, Abraham saw Isaac carry the blessing, but not Ishmael. Ishmael's out. And, and, and Isaac saw Jacob carry the blessing, but not Esau. Esau's out. But Jacob doesn't have to experience that. All 12 of Jacob's, 12 of Jacob's sons are in this family 
that God's going to use. They're in Revelation as, as pillars. And they're broken. There's not anybody perfect in there. And we read a lot of their stories and we saw a lot of the descriptions of those guys a couple week last week. And, and, and all of them are broken. All of them carry these sins. All of them carry this, this stuff that makes them not qualified, not worthy to have that role. Yet that's how the Lord ordained it. That's how the Lord is going to use them by His grace. So that this nation is going to form in exile in Egypt in the most unexplicable way. So that gets us to verse 29. Let's read it. Genesis chapter 49, verse 29. Then he, that's Jacob, commanded them, that's his sons, and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah at the, uh, to the east of Mamre, in the field of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field uh, from Ephron the Hittite as a possess, uh, to possess as a burying place. And there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. And there they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave that is in where I bought, uh, where that is in it where bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed, he breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. There's several things we need to see in, in, in this passage right here as we, we wrap up Genesis. I mean, this is the end. This is Moses is writing his book, and he's tying knots on it so he can begin the next book that he writes, which is Exodus. But immediately what we see here with the way Jacob's talking is that there is life after death. That it is merely a doorway that we walk through, but we all, all must go through this doorway. And so if we're believers, if we're, if we're Christians, we understand death and we understand that heaven is real. We understand that hell is real and we understand that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. It's not our works, it's not our morals, it's not our good behavior that saves us and elevates us to the Lord. It's Christ humbling himself and coming to us, being crucified, resurrected, and ascending to God that saves us. But death is still scary. Because at the end of the day, none of us have gone through it yet. And we can trust the Lord, and we should. We can have faith that God is going to carry us through. We can look at Psalms, like Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. A psalm like that can bring us comfort when we approach texts like this or, or lives like that, when our lives come to an end or relatives' lives are coming to an end. And I love that psalm, and I've preached that psalm at, at multiple funerals because we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but God doesn't stop when he gets to the valley. Have you ever caught that? Everything else that we cling to in life can't do that. You do not have an iPad and Netflix when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. They can't make it. No moralistic teacher, no life coach, nothing. All of our hopes, if it's not in the Lord, all of our things that we cling to, all of our idols that we, we carry with us, none of that can go through the valley of the shadow of death. Yet God can. Right? There's no social media. Nobody's doing the TikToks or the Snapchat or Instagram in the middle of... We're alone. 
and it can be scary. But in Psalm 23, David tells us a couple things that give us comfort. First, it's the shadow of the valley of death. Spurgeon talks about how this is like a dog. If you you find a mean dog, a mean dog can bite you and it'll hurt. But the shadow of a dog has never bitten anybody. And second, it's the Lord's rod and the Lord's staff that comfort us and guide us through this. He goes where no other guides can go. I was talking to a buddy yesterday. We were talking about how we live in a a, a culture in a time where we want to deny death. I'm not making a theological statement about how you like should be cremated or not cremated. I'm not doing any of that. All I'm really saying is just statistically, if you look around, open casket funerals are less and less and less than they ever have been before. And a lot of people, even if it is an open casket funeral, will, will avoid looking at the person who's deceased. And, and I understand why. It's I want the last memory of them to have to be alive. I want to remember them for that. I don't want this to be the last memory I have of them. And we spend thousands upon thousands of dollars in health products to help us live longer. We will eat asparagus to try to live longer. <laughs> or to have our lives be more full. And certainly we should steward the bodies that the Lord has given us. We must also recognize that the ultimate good for us is not to have a six-pack ab so we can wear medium t-shirts. Jacob recognizes what we need to recognize too. Despite our best efforts, we all shall die at some point or Jesus will come back. Those are our, those are two ways out of this thing. Jacob recognizes that his life is coming quickly to an end. He's kind of been hinting at this for a while. If you remember when the brothers came back the first time, uh, for, or the second time from Egypt, when they're like, or the first time, and Jacob's like, I'm getting old. I don't know if I can survive if Benjamin leaves. And then the second time, he's like, I'm revived because I learned that Joseph is alive. And now they've been in Egypt for about 17 years. And so Jacob kind of overshot it there. But now he's serious. So he has this last request that he's already made it to Joseph, but now he's saying it to all of his sons. He's saying, I want you to bury me. And he gives us a detailed description of where this cave is at. Everybody knows this is the one piece of land that Abraham was able to purchase. This is the one piece of land in the promised land that the Israelites actually own at this point. They don't own anything else there. It's still promised. But he wants to be buried with the other patriarchs. There's a little bit of, of, of sign of growth in Jacob here, but there's also a little bit of sign of some Jacob still lingering around in him. Right? He has two wives. Rachel's his favorite, but Leah's buried with the patriarchs. Did you catch that? Not Rachel. And so Jacob has to make a decision who he's going to be buried by. And he wants to be buried next to Abraham and Isaac, or does he want to be buried next to Rachel? And he picks Abraham and Isaac. But, but, but then how he's talking about it, did you catch? I'll read it again. And there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. And there they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. Silence. Won't even call her his wife. He just says that's where she's She's buried. And then he finishes his command, he rolls over in bed, and he passes away. Verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. That is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. 
And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb, that I hewn out, uh, that I hewn out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh and the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there they went up with him, both chariots and horsemen, and it was very great company. So we know from the book, Joseph's a crier. We should have expected this. When, when his dad passed away, he's going to cry. He cries all the time throughout the book of Genesis. And I, and I get it. There's this flood of emotion that must be overwhelming him. He didn't see his father for a really long time. He was reunited, and they seem to be close every time they're talked about after they get reunited in Egypt. And so all of this just falls over Joseph at once. It washes over Joseph. I want to point this out because it happens sometimes at funerals, and it needs to be said not at a funeral so that we can all hear it together. It is okay to trust God, and it is okay to cry. It is okay to mourn. Joseph has been the epitome of faith in this book. He's the only person that we've seen in the book of Genesis outside of God that we could say, we, you know, Joseph really doesn't have a lot of sins that are pointed out to us. He was an annoying little brother, so he got thrown in a pit. Outside of that, what does he do? He goes through the highs and the lows of circumstances, and he never seems to lose sight of who God is and how God might use him in this situation. And he knows that the God of Jacob, the God of his father, is going to carry him through death into eternal life. And Joseph still cries. You don't have to cry. You don't have to not cry. There's a freedom there is what we need to understand. He weeps not because he doesn't know where his dad is at, but because he knows that for the rest of his earthly life, his dad's not going to be there with him. It leaves a scar and it leaves a mark. And it's not something that you get over. It's something that you just get used to having. It just becomes a new normal for you. I firmly believe that the Lord gives us those moments and those times to spur us into growth in the Lord. So what we see is that weeping and mourning are worship. Sometimes it's good worship, and sometimes it's not good worship. In those moments when we're broken, when we're shattered, where we have nowhere else to turn, when it seems like the bottom has fallen out and it seems like life is just never going to be what we want it to be, we've lost someone we treasure, someone we value, a, a father, a mother, a grandfather, a grandmother, a child, heaven forbid. It's in those mo- moments that what we treasure most tends to boil up in that worship, doesn't it? So let me say a few things that kind of, this is kind of one of those sermons, it's like there's a lot of things I see in funerals that we need to address, but not at a funeral because it's not an appropriate time. 
your deceased relatives and friends are not angels. They're not watching after you. And this is good news. Can I tell you why? Heaven is not about you and me. When we die, if we believe in Jesus, we are not carried into the eternal, we're, we're carried into the eternal presence of Jesus where he's complete and he fully shines over us, but heaven was not created for you and I to flesh out our carnal desires. As much as I want there to be an unlimited supply of oatmeal cream pies in heaven, I'm not convinced that there is. And if all that I want out of heaven are that my selfish desires are granted, then what I'm worshiping is not Jesus but myself. That's not the heaven of the Bible. Heaven was made by God for God's glory. So we worship in heaven and we glorify Jesus for an eternity with unhindered sin that doesn't exist anymore. So we worship Jesus in a perfected state. We know that before the fall in Genesis 2, if you remember that far back, it's like 48 verses ago, chapters ago. They worked in the garden with God. Never once is it described as painful. Never once is it described as boring. There's a sinless joy that was there. So it's important for you and I to recognize that our deceased loved ones who, who were believers are not watching over us. They're not, we don't pray to them. They're not our God. We're given very limited information on angels. The word means messenger. But one thing we do know, we're told in in Hebrews 1, that they're a separate created being. And and, and there's a subtle... I don't think it's intentional, so I'm I'm treading softly. But there's a subtle... Uh, idolatry that happens when, when we think that our loved ones are, are, are watching after us and kind of controlling things for us. When Jesus leaves, he says, I'm going to send to you one who's a comforter. I'm going to send to you one who's going to encourage you. I'm going to send to you one who's going to be a helper. The Holy Spirit. It's not our loved ones who are our helpers. Who have just, it's, it's, the Holy, it's God himself who's interceding for us. It's God himself who sends the Holy Spirit to reveal scripture for us, for his glory. It's not about us. It's about God. So crying's not a sin. You don't need to feel ashamed or guilty of of that, but we also need to be careful because death often reveals what we idolize in our hearts. It reveals who or what we worship. And so Joseph, interestingly here, has Jacob embalmed. Like we don't, right, when I think of Egyptians, I think of pyramids and I think of mummies. That's what they're known for, and this is what they're doing. They're, they're embalming Jacob because that's what their religious beliefs led them to do, that they wanted to help us escort him through the spiritual. That's not what Jacob believed, but Joseph has Jacob embalmed, and it takes 40 days. But there's an interesting note here. To catch that they mourn Jacob, the Egyptians are mourning Jacob for 70 days, and that number is not innocent there. When Pharaoh dies, he had to be mourned for 72 days. 
So what they're doing is saying Jacob is the father of this Canaanite who came over and saved the Egyptians. He was the one who helped them get through this famine. Jacob fed a lot of people in this famine, and he made that country a lot of wealth, and they recognize that it means a lot to Joseph. And so Joseph, because of his status, they mourn his father for 70 days, just a tick under how long they mourn Pharaoh. They understand who Joseph's God is. They understand who Jacob's God is. And so Joseph asks Pharaoh if he can go fulfill this promise to his dad, go bury him in the land of Canaan. And Pharaoh says, go. And so Joseph leaves. And it's interesting, the group that leaves with him. It was like, just, it kept going. There's this whole parade of people going with him. There's people from Egypt, and there's people from Pharaoh's house, and people from Joseph's house. And then there's all of these people. The only people that are left in the land of Goshen are the grandkids and the flocks. Now remember, Moses is writing uh, uh, Genesis. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, God uses Moses to pin Genesis down, and he pins Genesis down while they're wandering in the wilderness. And so there's a couple key phrases that Moses uses to kind of key us into to an idea that he has here, that God uses. Did you catch that chariots and horsemen were both talked about leaving Canaan and going, or leaving Egypt? The next time in the Bible the Israelites leave Egypt will be at Exodus. And they will be chased by Egyptian chariots and horses. And they will be covered in the Red Sea because God parts it and sends the Israelites through. Like, I can't imagine what those guys hearing this are like. Are you kidding? Like, we have gone out of Egypt and then we went back in? Verse 10. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he, had, uh, he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizram. Is beyond the Jordan, and his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess, uh, to possess as a burying place. And after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, and his brothers and all those who had gone up with him to bury his father. So we see this large crowd of people that are all going with like the funeral procession to get to the graveyard and they they stop at this threshing floor and they lament. Again, it's okay to cry. The Lord has given you and I emotions. Emotions are tools. Now we're not to be controlled by emotions, but they're from the Lord. They're not bad in and of themselves, and they often give us a peek into our hearts. But these, these Egyptians, these, these Israelites are mourning, they're lamenting so loud and so much that the native people at Atad named this place Abel Mizraim, which is a pun. Abel, if you change one vowel, it means meadow. But if you change it back, it means mourning. And so they named this place the Mourning of Egypt. And then they put Jacob in the tomb with Leah, with Isaac and Rebekah, with Abraham and Sarah. 
the one connection point they have to the land of Canaan, the one place that they actually own, that Joseph owns, that he'll pass down. They place his father there, and then they turn, and they go back to Egypt. See, one of the other things we know that we need to be prepared for is death doesn't stop time for those who continue living on. The world keeps spinning. God allows it to do so. And so we weep and we mourn and we lament and hopefully we worship God in the midst of that that struggle and that trial. And then we're strengthened by God who doesn't abandon us in those moments, but, but rather he's right there with us weeping and mourning and lamenting and shaping our wounds and, and using those things to make us more and more like him. You know the story of Lazarus in the New Testament when Lazarus is dead in the tomb? They tell Jesus, hey, Lazarus is going to die. You need to come and save him. And Jesus waits. He doesn't go to help save Lazarus yet. Then he kind of moseys on over and he gets there and everybody's crying because they say Lazarus is dead. And you know what Jesus does? He weeps. He knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead and he weeps. He weeps because he comforts his people. He's not a God who's distant and away from us and doesn't care about what we're going through. He's a God who enters into our lives with us and experiences those things with us. He was tempted just like we were tempted, yet he's God not like us. We can be strengthened in those hard times because we know that we're not abandoned by Jesus. And we can look at the gospel and we can say that God knows death. told Tanner today, I think I've said it before, my favorite trick question to, to get people tricked on the Bible is, there's two people in the Bible who never die. Do you know who they are? Enoch and Elijah. But if you say it to kids, what they typically go is Jesus. That's not true. Our Christianity is founded upon God humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is our God who doesn't avoid the struggle. He dies for us. I can't imagine what it must have been like for God the Father to pour his wrath out on God the Son when it was not something that Jesus had earned. And we hear Jesus in the garden praying to God the Father, if there's any way for salvation to come to these broken and sinful people who don't deserve it, but I love them, if there's any way for them to be saved besides this, then let's do that, but not my will, but your will. And God says there is no other way. Our sin is very serious, and we don't need to act like it's not. Now, we don't need to be overwhelmed by it either, because God dies for us. Our sin separates us from God, and it cost Jesus God his life, and there's no other way for us to be reconciled to God. He comes to seek and save the lost, and this means he bears our wrath for the judgment of our sins on the cross of Christ. He takes our death. God died so that you and I might live. And if we read the scripture, he doesn't die begrudgingly. He doesn't go, oh, fine. But you had better tithe 10%. You had better get your act together. No more cussing. You only listen to Christian music. No, he willingly goes to the cross. And he goes because he loves us with a love that honestly we cannot fully ever fathom. You know, we're able to love because God first loved us. If there's no God, there's no love. 
how we see, how we view death reveals so much about how we view God. We were talking in the parenting class this morning again. The guy was talking to us and it reminded me of uh, there's this thought about heaven. There's this thought that when we get to heaven, we'll get all the answers and that's another lie. We're not, we don't become all knowledgeable when we get to heaven. In fact, one of the joys of heaven is that we spend an eternity. That's a long time. Like we can't fathom the idea of how long an eternity is because it has no end. and Our minds are just not good enough. So we have this eternity with God in heaven where what we do a lot of times in heaven is we just explore the Lord. We worship God, we learn about God, and we never come to the end of who God is and what God has done. God's grace and God's love is a pit that is deep and that would never, like this morning they talked about an illustration, if you had a rope and, and God's love, God's grace, God's glory is the ocean and you drop the rope, you would run out of rope before you ever hit the bottom. There's a song that says, if we were to write God's love in the skies and spell it out completely and all of the oceans were ink, we would run out of ink. How we view death reveals so much about how we view God. And how we view God affects everything in our life. I sometimes think about my funeral service. Uh, the song, Again, I have a weird life. Everybody around me has died, so don't get too close. I think we got the songs that will be played. They won't be my picks. Morgan won't let that happen, I promise. I think about the people who might come. I think about practical jokes that I could play on them. I also think about how I hope that at my funeral service that that, that everyone who comes is forced to deal with the gospel of Jesus, not because it's shoved down their throat, but because the life that I've lived glorifies the God so much that when we sit back together and talk about someone's life, you can't deal with it without looking at Jesus. I hope that people are gathered to comfort my family. I hope that my flaws are laughed at. And I hope that my God is worshipped. This is a rough question, an important question I've been dealing with all week long, just trying to wrestle with what does this look like in my life, what does this look like in our lives. The reality that we see here is we are worshipful beings and we will worship. And so at our funerals, those who come will worship. It's not a question of if, it's a question of who or what. May we live lives that exalt God so much that he's worshiped at our funerals. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. God, I thank you that there's times in life where things are dark. There's times in life where things can be scary. There's times in life when things can feel unknown, when, when the bottom falls out, when we mourn and we lament and we, we cry. And God, I thank you so much that, that you don't abandon us in those times. That you're right there in the midst of them with us, comforting us, encouraging us, growing us. God, I thank you that you've made us people who worship that worship is not something that we just turn on and off. Worship is something that we direct. We're always worshiping something. We're always clinging for something. We're always trying to find something that puts us in awe. 
Help us to be in awe of you. God, I pray for those who are here this morning, who have sang songs together and and have heard your word proclaimed, and now we, we enter into singing another song, worshiping you through singing and responding to your message. So God, I pray for any unbelievers who might be here. And God, honestly, many of the unbelievers who we have in our church are our children. I pray that you would soften their hearts to the gospel. That they would understand that they should repent of their sin. They should turn to you, God, not because it it's, makes life easy, but because it makes life worth glorifying you. I pray that the God we present to our kids would be a God that is worth glorifying, worth worshiping. God, I pray for the believers that are here, that you would help us to be encouraged by your word, that whatever conviction that you give us that we would repent of, we would turn it to, we would throw it at the foot of the cross, and then we would worship you in our words and in our actions. Help us to make much of Jesus this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, Tanner's going to lead us in worship.